0: Hello everyone, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode of my podcast, I just wanted to let you know that my new book, A Heretics Manifesto, is now back in stock on Amazon. Amazon UK had a bit of a glitch there for a few days, but it's fixed now. So if you tried to get a copy of my book from Amazon and you couldn't, go back there right now and you can get it. Or if you'd like a signed copy, we still have our very special offer running. Anyone who donates £50 or more to Spike will get a free signed copy of the book while stocks last. To donate your £50 and get your signed copy, go to spiked-online.com slash donate. That's spiked-online.com slash donate. We'll also throw in a whole year's access to Spike supporters, our online donor community packed with perks, as an extra thank you. Thank you so much. And now on with the show.
1: this kind of identitarian obsession is deeply unhelpful because what it does, it fragments the working classes. Much of this being imported from the United States where you're almost seeing the rebirth of segregation. And I don't want to see that in Britain at all because I think part of being a mature, multiracial democracy is that you thrash out those issues together and that might lead to disagreements indeed hostilities as well but it's better thrash that out as opposed to being separated and you have your space i'll have my space because what that ultimately leads to is racial fragmentation
0: hello welcome back to the brendan o'neill show with me brendan o'neill and my special guest this week rakib assan rakib welcome to the show
1: thank you for having me brendan
0: It's great to have you on. This is the first time you've been on the show. I'm very happy to have you here, not least because you've got this new book out called Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities, a book I think everyone needs to be talking about. It's got some really good stuff in there. I've got lots of questions I want to ask you about the book. Um, I think I'll I'll kick off with a broad one, uh, which is just to ask you about the state of the nation. You opened the book with this really dramatic and quite clever vision of britain as a country which engages in grand nation building projects overseas in countries like afghanistan not very successfully as everyone will be aware while at the same time here at home the nation seems to be fraying and there is even a question mark over what the nation is is there a national culture is there any such thing as national values should there be so you you give us this very curious spectacle of a country, a modern, uh, progressive, uh, rich country like Britain, which supposedly builds nations over there, but can't really do it back here at home. So just to kick things off, give us a sense of how much you think the nation is fraying, the idea of the nation is fraying in the UK, and what what are the symptoms of that that you've recognised and that you wanted to touch on?
1: No, absolutely. I think firstly, I think there's a crisis when it comes to the conception of the domestic, uh, the democratic nation-state um, in Brexit Britain. I think that something that I've written in the book and I've also written in many articles for us at Spite is that there's, there's a real lack of almost imagination, but also lack of political will when it comes to protecting what I consider to be quite traditional conceptions of nationhood. Uh, something that I tackle in my book, Beyond Grievance, is this toxic mixture of, uh, I'll call it, open borders cosmopolitanism with a radical cultural liberalism, uh, and, and I think, in a sense, that, that the nation state is suffering because you have many people, and this is something that cuts across political parties, uh, if truth be told, where you have this sort of this sort of global vill- villager. Uh, philosophy, this kind of liberal internationalism, which is increasingly being mixed with narrow identity politics. And I think what you see there is the inclusive understandings of a democratic nation state being sandwiched. Between the two. And I think that really needs to be tackled. And I would say that considering I uh, I consider myself to be a member of the sort of traditional old fashioned left. I think that the modern political left in particular simply hasn't been strong enough when it comes to the democratic nation state. Um, I think that the Labour Party in particular, there, there were the two large sections uh, within the Labour Party which wanted to thwart Brexit which was the largest democratic exercise that was ever seen um, in modern-day Britain. Uh, so, so I think a big part of the book is really trying to come up with a, an inclusive, progressive um, defence of the, of the nation-state, because I think that without that, in a country as diverse as ours, um, you can see social cohesion unravelling if you don't provide that robust defence.
0: So that's a very good start. And you mentioned their identity politics, and I really have many things I want to ask you about identity politics, why the left has embraced it, what it means, what its impact is likely to be and already has been. Um, But I want to start off by asking you how we got here to begin with, how we got to a situation where... Uh, As you've just outlined, um, the nation state is not taken seriously as an idea. We seem to have elites who are more committed to global institutions and global fellow travellers than they are to their own country, their own fellow citizens and so on. And how we seem to have moved very speedily and quite violently from a politics of class, a politics of helping uh, ordinary people to reach their potential to a politics of identity, a politics that pits one community against another, one racial group against another. So I want to ask you how we got into this situation. And, and you have a very useful way of describing the contemporary expressions of this problem uh, in your book. You talk about the impact of two things in particular on contemporary discourse. Firstly, the vote for Brexit uh, in 2016. And then secondly, the explosion of the Black Lives Matter Idea and movement in 2020, following the killing of George Floyd, and I thought that was very useful as a as a very contemporary uh, treatment of Britain and uh, all the different things that are happening, particularly the shift from democratic ideals to identitarian ones. And I think Brexit and Black Lives Matter captured and exacerbated those things enormously. So, just talk us through why you think those two events were so important to the thesis of your book. So you've got 2016, a huge, wonderful, in my view, democratic vote to leave the European Union. You've got 2020, this kind of strange identitarian revolt over the killing of uh, a black guy in America, very far away from the United Kingdom. Why do you think those two events were important to the ideas that you're concerned about and want to challenge?
1: Well, I, I think that Brexit was a phenomenon which is suffered from grossly inaccurate caricatures the, the, the moment it took place. Uh, many people described it as a form of white nostalgia, As something that Sir Vince Cable, um, big figure in the Liberal Democrats, uh, he, that's what he insinuated. Uh, There's many people who said that this was ultimately um, a revolt of the bigoted reactionary throwbacks across Britain. And what they really miss is the cross-class inter-ethnic nature of of Brexit. Uh, Many uh, communities, which are not white by any stretch of the imagination, uh, for for example, my hometown of Luton delivered a Brexit vote of 56.5%. It it is now a majority non-white town. And I I think that what people didn't realise is there's British Asians, and this is something that I'll tackle in the book. There are many British Asians with a very strong British national identity, but they don't feel an ounce of Europeanness. That's the truth of it. They don't have a European identity. It's very much the fact that they have, may have a strong uh, attachment to Britain, uh, in many cases their faith, uh, and also that they will have um, those emotive ties with their country of origin, maybe India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, et cetera. Uh, but but what they don't have is this strong European identity, and that's largely because they were encouraged to. In many cases, they come from uh, families who, in previous generations, maybe even served in the British Indian Army, the Merchant Navy. So they have that natural connection to Britain. And when many people, when many of them moved to Britain, it was almost like they were returning to the motherland I- I- in a way. Uh, and, and I think with Brexit, what was really interesting for me, which is which also very depressing was the fact that many people wanted to portray this as a racist enterprise. It's not racist to want the restoration of national sovereignty. Uh, It's not racist to uh, want a well-managed and well-ordered immigration system. By the way, when we were a member of the European Union, I'd say that under freedom of movement, I'd say that predominantly white European migrants were the beneficiaries of preferential treatment. more more than anything. And I also think that a a big part of what was missing for Brexit was ultimately people were concerned about um, the democratic deficit within those European Union institutions. Now, many people might not have much of an opinion of politicians in our own country, but what Brexit did was ultimately restore that accountability um, at at the national level, which I think is very important when you're talking about um, a democratic nation state. Moving on to BLM, I think similar similar problems here, except that w- what we had here was grossly inaccurate caricatures of Britain at large. Um, ultimately, that this argument that Britain is a fundamentally racist society, there's many people who hanker uh, or rather uh, they're nostalgic for the days of empire and colonialism, uh, and also more broadly that it's a country where. There's a sort of of rampant victimisation of ethnic minorities across a range of institutions, whether that's in the public sector, private sector or third sector. Uh, Simply not the case. Uh, And I think that when it comes to ethnic and racial disparities, and this is something that I've tackled in many of our writings at Spike, there's a variety of social, cultural, and economic factors at play when it comes to analysing those disparities. Something like family structure, which truth be told, I think that one of the biggest problems facing many black British communities is what I call in the book a fatherlessness epidemic. Now, many people consider that to be controversial, but when you see that among British Indian uh, children up to the age of 15, uh, only 6% live in lone parent households. That goes up to 63% when it comes to their peers of Black Caribbean origin. How can that not be a problem? So I think if you really, if you truly care about Black British well-being, then surely family structure needs to be part of that conversation. So what I saw with BLM was ultimately the vilification of Britain, but this effort to almost sideline these very important factors when it comes to level of educational attainment, socioeconomic progress, uh, social wellbeing. Uh, And and I think they're very concerned about the kind of impact that has especially on social cohesion in modern day Britain.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason that that section of the book rung true with me is because I think what's very interesting about both Brexit and BLM is that both of them exposed the extent to which the left and sections of the elite more broadly now interpret everything through the prism of race and everything through the idea that Britain is a racist country. A lot of British people are, are racist people. Both of those ideas became apparent in response to those two global events. You know, as you say, Brexit was depicted as a xenophobic vote, a hankering for the, the the rule of the whites in the past and empire and so on, a complete fantasy. No one went to the ballot box because they were dreaming of, you know, <laughs> restoring the Raj in India or something like that. It's just ridiculous. Um, and then BLM, even more pointedly, became an opportunity to push the idea that Britain is an institutionally racist country uh, just like America, you point out in the book quite a few times that the British left is importing American style racial grievance politics, which just don't work here. These are very different countries. Um, I want to ask you about why you think the left has come to interpret everything in that fashion, as uh, through the politics of grievance, I guess, or through the idea that we're all racist, and why you think that's wrong. And I want to start off by asking you about white privilege. So your your first chapter is on uh, why the left should ditch white privilege theories. And that's another importation in many ways of an American idea, the, I, the idea of white privilege. Um, and you analyse very well why it just doesn't stack up. But could you just outline for us why you think the notion that all white people are privileged, which is something you hear all the time from radicals and from leftists. Why do you think that's a
1: problem? I think it's a serious problem, Brendan. I think earlier you mentioned the politics of class. And I think that's been increasingly left by the wayside because of this cultural obsession with race. I I think there's a a grave intellectual deficit uh, within the modern British left, uh, if truth be told. And I think because of that, uh, increasingly looking to brainlessly import these, this racial grievance politics from the United States. As you say, a country with a vastly different history, as a very different racial context there compared to here. Uh, I, I think the reason why I have a real issue with white privilege is because I think one of the greatest privileges that you can have in life is being born in a stable family unit. And there, actually, if you see the figures, Brendan, uh, there's many non-white ethnic minority communities which are far better positioned when it comes to stable family units, having the the sort of family-based households, which encourage their children to thrive, to prosper, to take education seriously. And and I think actually if you see uh, there's an increasing number of white British working class communities, I think one place which really springs to mind is Blackpool, for example, like Brendan, you have to see there the level of not just material deprivation, but the social atomisation, the hollowing out of the local economy there, the sort of seaside-based economy, is there's such a rapid decline. How can you describe a place like that as privileged? It's absolutely remarkable. And, and Blackpool's not alone in that. There's many coastal towns and sort of left-behind post-industrial areas, which are predominantly white, um, traditionally Labour voting they're being left by the wayside when it comes to these important discussions surrounding poverty and disadvantage. And I think that's why I think it's a very serious problem because I think one of Labour's biggest challenges is reconnecting with Brexit voting communities in the provinces and coastal towns. That, that, that's, a, that's an important political challenge. And they need to win back those constituencies if they want to have a workable parliamentary majority after the next general election. And I think it's a real problem because I, I, I almost think here, uh, because of these narratives of white privilege, which uh, I've seen some very desperate attempts to defend these narratives as well, impoverished white British communities in the country are almost viewed as an inconvenience because their existence undercuts those narratives. But interestingly, the the, the impressive economic and educational performance of non-white communities are also being left, by the way, sort of being overlooked because they're also an inconvenience to those narratives. And I think that what you see there is a deeply immature politics, which is incredibly divisive from a racial perspective, but also ultimately, in my view, useless when it comes to designing effective social policy for modern-day Britain.
0: Yeah, and I think the it's so clear that the word privilege has lost all meaning these days. It's such a ridiculous word. Every time you hear it, it, it doesn't really make sense. I remember once on a radio discussion, I was called a privileged man by uh, by a feminist whose father was the CEO of the vast supermarket chain in which I had a Saturday job when I was 16 years old. And you just think, for me, that was a very good example of how class has been completely and utterly pushed aside in this. And the white privilege idea, I mean, it's almost the greatest defeat of class politics you could imagine. Because it actually organises people according to their skin colour rather than how the left would traditionally have viewed society, which is that some people are haves, some people are have-nots. There is a disparity between uh, what people own, how much they earn, how much economic power they have. Um, You know, there are very, very rich white men who own the means of production, to use an old-fashioned phrase, and there are very, very poor white men who own nothing and have nothing. And to to say that there is a privilege shared across those two sections of society strikes me as completely wrong and anti-working class, fundamentally. Um, So in relation to that, I wanted to ask you to what extent you think identity politics is... The less replacement for class politics and, and why it has taken that form. Because one, one thing I was thinking as I was reading your book is that a lot of this, this stuff, as you outline very well, is imported from the United States, from universities in the United States, from social groups, social movements, cultural institutions, um, and just implanted here in a way that doesn't work. But also, if you think back to Britain itself in the 70s and the 80s, you do see the emergence of identity politics. In the domestic realm as well, you know, you see uh, the the uh, growth of identitarian obsessions among left-wing activists, particularly in certain sections of the Labour Party, as early as the 70s and the 80s, almost like they were looking for a new constituency. They become increasingly frustrated with the working class. So they go looking for new potential revolutionary movements who they hope that they can cozy up to. Um, So to what extent do you you see identity as a a usurping of class politics and how divisive do you think that is?
1: I I think it's the greatest threat to conventional class politics. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, There's something that I argue for in the book is what Britain needs is a traditional and mature social democratic party which really pays attention to the shared economic concerns and social anxieties across the multiracial working classes in Britain uh, so so I, I think things like workers' rights, uh, employment protections. I want to see more family-friendly housing being built in the country. Uh, I, I, I want to see more of an emphasis when it comes to health care. Uh, I, I do want to see a, a more effective and responsive national health service. I think these are the kind of things that, that, that tie together a variety of communities, working-class communities, uh, who may be incredibly diverse in terms of their race, ethnicity or faith. So, so I actually think that this kind of identitarian obsession, um, bizarre to have this in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, by the way, which affects working-class people of a variety of backgrounds, uh, it, it is deeply unhelpful because what it does, it fragments the working-classes. Uh, in the country uh, and I think as you say Brendan much of this being imported from the United States where you're almost seeing the rebirth of segregation uh, in, in some of these educational institutions uh, these safe spaces that they're not safe when it comes to cultivating and maintaining social cohesion put it that way uh, and I don't want to see that in Britain at all because I think part of being a mature multiracial democracy is that you thrash out those issues together Um, And that might lead to disagreements, uh, indeed hostilities as well. But it's better to thrash that out as opposed to being separated and you have your space, I'll have my space. And then uh, because what that ultimately leads to is racial fragmentation, which I don't want to see in Britain in any way, uh, shape or form. Uh, I think in, in Britain generally when it comes to class, uh, you can see that the Labour Party has become increasingly professionalised, middle class, uh, degree educated. I mean, in many ways, uh, I'm, I'm someone, I'm, I'm PhD educated, Brendan. Say that you know, I'm, I'm not doing too badly for myself at all. I don't, I, you don't have to feel guilty about that. And I think the problem is, is that you have many people on the modern British left, uh, sort of so white British, middle class, I would consider to be genuinely privileged, in some cases privately educated as well. They're almost insecure because of that privilege. And, and what they want to do, they want to be social justice warriors. They want to feel like they're fighting the good fight. And, and race is one of the ways that they do that. Um, and I see some of them cosplaying almost civil rights activists in the United States back in the 60s. It, it, it's tragic and very embarrassing, Brendan, if truth be told or not, when I've seen this. But, but I think crucially what, what they do, that they're dragging down. Um, uh, class politics on the left, we're still a country, I think there's significant class-based barriers. Uh, Many people say that, you know, that sounds very Marxist. I don't particularly care because 77% of the country believes that the gaps between different classes is too big in Britain. Uh, That would include quite traditional hard-headed Tories in that 77%. Uh, And and for me, so I think the two things I want to see uh, from a mature political left is how do we tackle those class-based barriers you know, that should be at the heart of social mobility discussions. And also the fact that we are one of the most inter-regionally imbalanced economies in the world. Uh, regional disparities are quite big in the country. So I think if they focus on those two things, you'll start seeing the sort of traditional... Labour voters who may have given the Conservatives their vote back in 2019 in order to facilitate Brexit because they wanted their Democratic vote to be respected. I think if Labour goes down that road that I've just described, I think that that could be very electorally appealing in many communities who, who in recent times have felt detached from their natural party.
0: Yeah, actually following on quite nicely from that, there is one thing I wanted to tease out with you in relation to I guess it's a question of whether you're optimistic or pessimistic. I mean, i you've always struck me as an optimist, but there there is there's a point to this question, which is that there are parts in your book where you challenge the depiction of Britain as this horrible institutionally racist country where um black and Asian heritage people have an awful time, and meanwhile all the all the whites are privileged and having a great time. you know this very caricatured view that people push. Um, And you challenge that and actually say, you know, integration is going pretty well. Some ethnic minority groups are doing better than white Brits when it comes to education or pay in the workplace. So there's a positive picture in that sense, um, in terms of the advancement of um, non-white groups in British society. But then, as you've just been talking about, you also shine the light on the tendencies towards racial fragmentation as a consequence of identity politics, As a consequence of the establishment and the left adopting this kind of grievance politics. So um, how do you see things going in that case? Do you see them going further down the road of things getting a bit better, as they have been for ethnic minority groups in this country? Or do you see them going down the road of people being kind of further Balkanized by this rather poisonous identity politics? Where do you straddle on that question?
1: I mean, as you say, Brendan, I'd say that I'm more of a natural optimist. Uh, I'm, a hopeful, I'm, a, I'm a hopeful man, but I always like to guard against complacency as well. And I think that, that that's the kind of tone that I want to strike with the book. I think that Britain has many things to be proud of. I think it's made significant strides when it comes to race relations. Uh, but saying that, we have to uh, proceed with caution. And and, uh, we have to realise and recognise the divisive nature of much of the identity politics which is being imported from from the United States. So I I think in terms of the country's future trajectory, uh, I still think there's part of the countries which are intensely segregated. uh, I think whether that's Blackburn in Lancashire, Dewsbury in Yorkshire, those kind of places spring to mind. But ethnic segregation in England and Wales is actually an all-time low according to recent studies. And I think that is, that is a positive. Uh, but, but, so I think ultimately a lot of this depends on what kind of Labour Party we, we have in the country. That, that's the truth of it, because the, there's a party where its traditions are very much rooted in social solidarity. Uh, the, 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 this idea that ultimately whatever differences we may have, it, it's those commonalities that we share, which should ultimately be at the front and centre when it comes to our national identity. Uh, I haven't seen much of that recently. In fact, I've seen the antithesis of that uh, in recent times, especially under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Uh, I, I think that things have improved under uh, Sir Keir Starmer's leadership, if truth be told, especially when it comes to issues such as anti-Semitism. I think that in, in increasingly I'm seeing more speeches which have emphasis on families and communities. I think that's heading into the right direction. But then you see ideas, for example, being championed by the likes of Annalise Dodds, she wants to introduce a new Race Equality Act, uh, which which I just think, again, with with the country, when you see the social and economic problems that we have, um, especially in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. I'm not really sure in a country where, you know, I say, Brendan, I think we're a hotspot when it comes to uh, family breakdown. Um, but w- the one thing that I think we are quite strong is when it comes to providing protections and rights uh, on the grounds of racial identity, religious affiliation, and ethnic background. That that's where Britain's actually doing really well. So, so I think that the issue I have here is when you're talking about that potential balkanisation of British society, and it does look like Labour may well return to government. Uh, consistently having quite handsome leads in the polls. I I, I think that that's where you do want a degree of moral political leadership here. So I think much of that rests on what kind of politics the modern Labour Party promotes.
0: So um, let's talk a little bit about the positive side of it. So the the, um, successful integration of uh, numerous sections of the non-white communities in the United Kingdom um, and even white immigrant communities as well. I mean, one part of your book that was I thought was very interesting was about the white Irish, because the thing I've always found very frustrating about the white privilege discussion is I think about my own family's, my own community's history, I guess. Um, you know, the people who came from Ireland in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, for whom times were quite difficult. They kind of clubbed together as an Irish community, certainly in the part of London I grew up in, because that made things a little bit easier. But, you know, um, work was hard, pay was not always good, um, social treatment was not always very fair or just. But then you talk in the book about how, more recently, Irish Britons or Irish heritage Britons outperform white Britons, um, uh, native Britons, I don't know if that's politically correct, (laughs) um, in terms of pay and educational achievement and so on. That's a very interesting development. And you've written in the past as well about how uh, you have kids from African heritage communities who are doing well in education, um, Pakistani kids, people from Indian heritage, all of whom are doing well and very often outperforming white British children, especially white British boys, which in itself is quite concerning, I think, in terms of why that section of society is, is potentially slipping downwards. So just talk us a little bit, through what are the successful signs of of how things are improving and which undercut this notion that we hear all the time that Britain is an institutionally racist country, which literally means there are institutional barriers to non-white people succeeding in the way that white people can.
1: No, absolutely. And I I think that one area where I think you're seeing a great deal of ethnic minority success is in education, uh, in, in schools across the country where, uh, as you say, that the, the, there's many white working class boys who are struggling at school. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think family structure comes into it. Um, what is culturally valued uh, as well? And what's a marker of social status? Uh, there, there have been reports which suggest that some white working class boys, when it comes to being quite studious and disciplined at school, they're sneered at by their peers. And, and I think that's problematic. That's not necessarily the case in other communities. Um, So I think that that, that, that's why in the book I talk a great deal about culture because I think culture is a very important factor when it comes to these kind of conversations. Uh, As you've talked about, uh, Indian-origin children do exceptionally well at school as well as uh, pupils of Chinese origin. I mean, this is a remarkable stat that I include in the book, Brendan, that um, Chinese-origin pupils with uh, special educational needs still perform better at attainment eight level than the wider pupil population with no identified special educational needs. Brendan, that's remarkable. Mm. That's a fantastic story of resilience and determination right there. Um, So that also taps into conversations about family culture as well. So I, I think that when it comes to looking at institutions, now I've often talked about institutions that they have to function better. I think many of our institutions don't necessarily perform as well as they should. Um, I, I think the NHS would be an example. I've even talked about in in the labour market. Um, th- there's still that name based discrimination, especially of a name which is not necessarily traditionally English sounding. It doesn't fare as well, even if you control for things like um, skills, uh, educational qualifications, etc. So I still think there's improvements to be made. I, I don't I don't think I'm in the business of wearing rose tinted spectacles when it comes to multiracial Britain. Um, but, but I think just to wh- whitewash all the ethnic minority successes, and I do include white Irish people in that as well, who are now the, the, the best paid group uh, in the country when it comes to median hourly pay. But as you say, when it comes to those discussions about resilience, determination, banding together, uh, there's a great deal of anti-Irish sentiment back in the day. That's the truth of it, especially at the time where, um, you know, during the time of the Troubles, I think there's many Irish Catholic communities who were discriminated against. Um, but I, th- I think theirs is a fantastic story now where I think there's a great deal of educational and socioeconomic success. I- I'd say that some of the most successful businesses in my hometown of Luton are Irish heritage businesses across a range of sectors. Um, and-, and I think that's something to be really proud of, actually. Uh, if, if, if truth be told. Um, so I, I think in short that the one thing I'd say is, as I said, it's about guarding against complacency, but celebrating those ethnic minority successes, but also understanding how those successes come about. And I'll just make this point, Brendan, when you look at educational outcomes, black African um, pupils in the UK, They perform better in terms of um, level of education attainment and are less likely to be expelled than their co-racial peers of black Caribbean origin. So when people say, you know, for example, the BLM UK organisation said we want to end the we want to (laughs) decriminalise the black pupils in the classroom. I mean, it's bonkers, Brendan. I think what you need to do, you need to be honest about why is it that one black ethnic category is doing much better than the other black ethnic category when it comes to those educational outcomes? And I think that's a very important conversation to have.
0: Yeah, and that's a conversation I wanted to have with you right now, actually, to, to tease out that very issue. Um, I think I agree with what you're saying about um, how a community like the Irish community changed in quite... A short period of time, historically speaking, uh, you know, my Irish family is scattered across the world outside of Ireland, including in Luton, uh, where there is a strong Irish community and they have a very strong commitment to Luton and uh, including my family who are there as well. Um, but it, it's undeniable, and you've just mentioned it now and you talk about it in the book, that some ethnic groups integrate better than others and some are more successful than others. And this is a question that, many people don't want to talk about it certainly something that the left doesn't want to address so they just use the blanket um idea of white privilege or institutional racism and that explains everything they don't have to think about the disparities in terms of achievement between an afro caribbean heritage kid and a chinese heritage kid they j- or, or, they just don't have to think about it they can just say oh racism explains everything so how do we explain this you've already mentioned culture and i guess the importance of social capital in terms of um, the sense of determination that can give to a young person, the sense of a, a, a willingness to be part of a community, part of society, a desire to achieve. Do you think that's the key thing here? Because the other aspect of it, I think, is the way in which the politics of identity that you write about in the book, and you've written about a lot over the years, I guess what I'm saying is the culture that certain communities grow up in is definitely a contributing factor to the difficulties they experience in terms of succeeding at school and university and work. But also it seems to me that identity politics entices certain community groups away from any sense of connecting to society, into this world of everything being, the world being against you. Uh, If you're a Muslim, you're not going to make it in this country. People are Islamophobic. They hate you. If you're an Afro-Caribbean kid, everyone's racist against you, they hate you. There is this tempting of certain communities into uh, this comforting, I guess, but ultimately destructive belief that society is out to get them. So do you think those factors play off each other? Firstly, the cultural capital that groups have or don't have, and then the way in which identity politics plays on people's minds and can actually lead them down a dark path?
1: No, absolutely. I I think it's a fantastic question. I I think that firstly, I've always made this point that I I think that Britain is probably the best place in the world to live as a Muslim, if truth be told, especially when you see the level of... Political persecution, social instability, and economic underdevelopment um, in many Muslim majority countries across the world. Uh, Britain certainly, it, it, if you could just compared to France, for example, which has a very, as you know, very sort of a rigid secular universalism, which is skeptical towards any kind of minority identity. I think that under uh, under the British model of integration, you could say uh, that there is that space to you know to value your ethnic heritage. Uh, and your and your religious identity. Now, some people may say that we've gone too far the other way, but I much prefer the British model to work with that as opposed to the French model, which I think truth be told, is seriously a struggle, struggling because of that sort of rigid assimilationism. Uh, you could say. Uh, I, I think that w- with identity politics as well, some people use it as a form of comfort to uh, to cover their own shortcomings. If I'm being absolutely honest, uh, I think it's far easier to blame institutions. Far, far easier to blame your, your teacher and uh, your boss and all the rest of it, um, as opposed to looking within. How could I have done this better? Um, is, is this the right way to perform in this particular capacity? I think that when you ask questions of yourself, I think that's when you actually truly make individual progress. Because I do think a degree of personal responsibility and individual initiative is needed uh, in order to thrive. Uh, I think that when it comes to looking at particular groups of being enticed by this identity politics, uh, I think that what's uh, quite common in many of these uh, social movements are people who, who are ultimately they're quite disillusioned with their own life circumstances. Now, as I said, that there is a discussion to be had in terms of um, how can institutions function better in an increasingly diverse society. I think we should have that conversation. But I think the worry is is that identity politics, in a way, it offers an opportunity for people to deflect from internal problems within their own communities. Um, I think that when it comes to black British communities, especially communities of black Caribbean origin, there's no doubt that there needs to be improvements in terms of police-community relations, especially when you've seen the recent reports and the recent uh, case review into the culture within the Metropolitan Police. The big thing that I call for in the book is that I actually call for the Met to be broken up and disbanded, and then either to be replaced by smaller forces, maybe at borough level, or maybe being absorbed by the sort of uh, outer forces, whether that's you know, Kent, Essex, Surrey, uh, and, and all the rest of it, Hertfordshire as well um so so i think for me there's two main issues here some people use identity politics as a way to deflect from their own privilege and i think that's primarily what i'm talking about there is sort of radical progressive white british liberals who who want to be shown to be fighting the good fight being social justice warriors And, and also you have many identitarian activists who would much rather blame the british state public institutions, or that, you know, provide this grossly inaccurate caricature of a country which is not truly tolerant, not really interested in fighting discrimination, which is completely not the case, as opposed to taking issue with problems within their own communities, which need to be solved within those communities as well.
0: Are you looking to get into journalism? Are you passionate about Spike's pro-freedom, pro-democracy politics, then we've got the internship program for you. Spiked is offering paid placements for six months for aspiring writers, editors, podcasters, and video makers. You have until the 16th of June to apply. Successful applicants will start work in July in Spiked's offices right here in London. Find out more about the internship program and how to apply by visiting spiked-online.com interns. That's spiked-online.com/slash interns. I wanted to ask you about the undertone of racial paternalism in some forms of identity politics, In in most forms of identity politics, I would say. And I particularly wanted to ask you about this in relation to the Muslim community and the way in which the left, in particular, talks about the Muslim community. And I've often thought there is an instinct of infantilization almost. um, that You know, for example, if you look at their obsession with policing Islamophobia, which can be quite a slippery term, I do think there is anti-Muslim bigotry in the UK, which is a problem um, and does need to be tackled and confronted whenever it emerges. But I always prefer to use that term rather than Islamophobia because Islamophobia crosses the line from defending a community from racial abuse or discrimination to defending a religion or certain ideas from criticism or or public discussion, which I think is a problematic view. But it does seem to me that the left, the radical left in particular, and you see this very much in the Corbyn movement, you you write quite a bit about Jeremy Corbyn's time at at the head of the Labour Party and the kind of politics he brought into the party. There is almost this politics of pity, which on the one hand... um, overlooks the point you've just been making, that being a Muslim in Britain is it's a good country in which to be a Muslim. It's better than many other countries. Um, but it sometimes seems to me that there's a bit of a pincer movement with the Muslim community. So on one side you have the hard right who see the Muslim community as the source of all the troubles in the country, uh, uniquely violent, uniquely um, disloyal. disloyal, cut off from the rest of the country, uh, a, a distinctively problematic community. Mm. On the other side, you have the radical left who often treat Muslims as um, requiring protection from public discussion, requiring protection from any analysis of some community practices or problems like grooming gangs or women's rights and so on. And I've made the point before that, of course, it's racist to say that Muslims are evil, which is what some people on the far right do. That's an obviously bigoted, racist view, but it's also quite bigoted to see Muslims as a community incapable of coping with uh, public discussion, public debate, and so on, requiring that protection. Do you think one of the problems with identity politics is a kind of racial paternalism, a, a treatment of certain communities as weak and requiring... Uh, a, a certain kind of creepy love from the upper middle classes. And how do you think that manifests itself, particularly in the discussion about Islam in Britain and, and Muslims in Britain?
1: No, I, I think, firstly, I think much of it is incredibly patronizing and, it, and it is, the, it is the infantilization of British Muslim communities. Often make the point that I don't refer, I don't say British Muslim community because what that does that overlooks the degree of sort of ideological diversity, um, ethnic diversity, and denominational uh, diversity as well. So I think it's very important to say that there's a variety of interests within the British Muslim population. But I think that if there is one thing that many British Muslims have in common. Is is that I think they believe that the media, and this quite often from, from the left and the right, uh, they indulge in grossly inaccurate caricatures uh, of British Muslims at large. Uh, as you say, the hard right are often portray not so much in the media, but I, I think this is something you see a lot on social media. Uh, hard right elements portray Muslims as some kind of is a sort of uniquely disloyal um, block which has a unique propensity to indulge in uh, acts of violence. Uh, and I'd also make this point that when it comes to concerns over Islamist extremism, um, when it comes to the level of those public concerns, uh, the level of concern within British Muslim communities is very similar to the level of concerns in the wider general population when it comes to being anxious over Islamist extremism. Uh, but then you you have the hard left to uh, the portray the portrayal of British Muslims as being, you know, this sort of disaffected monolithic block. Um, distrustful of public institutions, downtrodden communities, that that doesn't hold up either, uh, if truth be told. Uh, British Muslims traditionally have very high levels of British identification, uh, which comes to the surprise of many people. Uh, Three in four British Muslims believe that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim, a good place to live for their co-religionists. When it comes to levels of trust in the police, the Bangladeshi ethnic group, which I belong to, predominantly Sunni Muslim, uh, has more confidence in, in their local police than white British people. Um, and, and I think that when you're looking at more recent surveys, the, the, the pitch is generally quite optimistic, uh, apart from when it comes to uh, perceptions of the media. If truth be told, I think many people in the country have problem with how the mainstream media functions in modern-day Britain. So I think here, what I think, you have elements of the left and elements of the right uh, they let down British Muslims uh, if, if truth be told and I think more generally that this idea that if you talk about the dangers of Islamist extremism, which is the principal terror threat in the UK that you would alienate British Muslims is actually a fundamental bigotry of low expectations there. Um, in my view the, the majority of British Muslims are anti-islamist well they simply want they, they want fairness they don't want favors uh, and ultimately they just want to serve their families to the best of their ability, and they want to uh, they want to see a country which is defined by equal opportunities. But I think much of that is overlooked in a very divisive uh, media environment.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. I, I think the, the anti-Muslim bigotry actually crosses those political lines, as you've just outlined there. Mm. I mean, the anti-Muslim bigotry that comes from sections of the hard right does bring to mind the anti-Catholic bigotry of the past prior to, Uh, Catholic emancipation in the 1800s. But then you have something new, which is the, uh, I would describe it as the anti-Muslim bigotry of low expectations from sections of the left, which believes that there are certain problems in our communities and our society that we shouldn't talk about in case we offend people or make them feel bad, which actually does have the effect of turning Muslims into second-class citizens because they are seen as less equal in terms of being part of a public discussion about the future of the country in which they live. Um, so that kind of um, implied second-class citizenry that is Im- imposed on certain communities through the process of infantilization, I think is a real problem and demonstrates that identity politics has so little to do with the politics of equality that um, people, would have, people on the left would have fought for in the past. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about the politics of equality and the politics of equity. You do touch on this and you mentioned Kamala Harris um, uh, and the politics of uh, equity. And I, I do think that if Labour were to bring in a new racial equality law, which you mentioned earlier, which would be a bizarre and preposterous thing to do in a pretty racially, a mostly racially fair country, although, as you say, there are, are improvements to be made, Uh, and also uh, uh, during a cost-of-living crisis. But I think if Labour were to do that, it would probably be racial equity-based. It would be this new idea, which is that certain groups need a leg up, a hand up, uh, particular forms of assistance to make them equal to the privileged whites. It would be a very destructive idea. How do you understand the difference between equity and equality, or I guess between identity and equality? And... um, Why would you argue that identity politics is not reflective of the arguments for racial equality that the left would have made in the past?
1: No, I mean, I think think that when it comes to the politics of equity, I think it's a very dangerous politics, uh, if truth be told. And, And I think in that politics would be support for racial quotas, which I'm completely against. I think it would be detrimental ethnic minorities if you saw those kind of quotas being in, uh, being introduced uh, at, at large scale. Uh, because ultimately, it, 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 you might have the situation where you have a British Asian or a black British person who's quite high up in a company, maybe because of those racial quotas, who may be f- perfectly capable. It, 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 they may well have the skills and knowledge to perform well in that role. But if you have those racial quotas in place, there may be a perception in the wider workforce that you're simply there because of your race. That undermines that person's authority within that particular organization. And I don't and, and that in itself actually can create serious problems in terms of cohesion within that organization. Uh, so I don't think it's the way forward. I've always talked about equality of opportunity. And I've even talked about this idea of maybe introducing more name-blind CVs. So people don't see, you know, what was was a potential ethnic or religious background of a particular name, um, and I think that in that sense you you could see a, a greater greater fairness when it comes to recruitment procedures, invitation to interviews, etc. That's what I mean by equality of opportunity. But I think this idea that, for example, a certain percentage of your organisation has to be black or Asian. I think for me that that has no place in a, in a mature multiracial democracy. And a lot of people say, oh, but this is ultimately compensating for decades of white privilege uh, and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, I, I think for me, I think the big discussion really is uh, to, to what extent are working class, state educated people represented Um, in in higher level positions. I think that's a more interesting conversation to be had. And I think it touches on those issues that we discussed earlier about class-based barriers. Now, if you introduce a quota, a racial quota, for a particular ethnic or racial group, but the majority of those individuals were privately educated from middle-class households, how much fairness have you really achieved? I, th- I think that's the conversation to be had. So for me, I think when it comes to equality of opportunity, I think that th- that's about spreading opportunities across the country, you know, looking at class, looking at, you know, the, the kind of neighbourhood someone lives in, uh, the, what kind of, you know, high-quality public services that they have available to them, especially in their younger years. I think that's that, that, that's what I mean. Uh, and, and I think that when it comes to sort of racial preferential treatment, I think that has no place. And actually, I think it backfires spectacularly. I think it undermines the authority of many talented ethnic minority people. And I think it could seriously uh, have a destabilising effect, especially when it comes to racial cohesion within particular organisations.
0: So, Rakeeb, there's so many more things I could ask you about. Uh, We've touched on a lot already. Um, I've just got two more questions, though, for you. Um, Probably too big to squeeze in at the end, but let's see what we can do. I want to ask you about the family. So you've mentioned the family already and the importance of the of the family. You have a chapter in the book on on in defense of the family. Um, and you talk about how the modern British left, the radical British left, has not only imported ideas that are anti-nation state, anti-democracy, um, anti-anti-racist, I would say as well, although that's a bit of a mouthful in terms of replacing the old goal of uh, racial equality with a new goal of racial division, um, but also they've become anti-family. Yeah. And you see this in many different ways. I mean, sometimes they just come out and say, you know, the, on the fringes, there will be people who say that the family is patriarchal, it's hierarchical, it's a, a poisonous institution that um, Fs people up, to, to um, paraphrase Philip Larkin. Um, but also, more subtly, they will often say things like, well, one-parent families are just as good. Single mothers are are fine, they're great. And, of course, many single mothers are very good mothers. That's absolutely true. But there is this relativistic urge to depict um, the struggling single mum whose life is made harder by the fact that she's doing it all on her own as being morally equal or just as likely to set someone up for life as if they were in a two-parent household with a father earning a wage and playing the role that fathers play. That always irritates me because I'm sure that argument largely comes from middle-class people who grew up in a two-parent household, a semi-detached house, somewhere nice, a leafy part of London or somewhere in the southeast. And it infuriates me that they think it's fine that a single mum is struggling with four kids in a small flat in Tower Hamlets. That's, that's an annoying vision that they have. But why did you think it was so important to have a whole chapter on the family because uh, this is a book about identity politics this is a book about racial grievance just explain a little bit if you can about why you think the family is key to this discussion
1: absolutely because i feel that many of the racial disparities that we see in britain are ultimately down to family structure and cultural dynamics within the household uh, I, I think that family when it comes to these discussions about um, economic and social success uh, the, the role of family structure. And when I talk about family structure, I also talking about wider family networks, including the role of grandparents, which can be invaluable and hugely beneficial. I'd like to see more of the conversations on the left when it comes to those discussions about young people's progress and development to focus more on the family. And, and as you say, there, there are radical progressive activists who they view the family as a hierarchical um, institution High rock is not necessarily a bad thing all the time. I think that's the truth of it. I, I was raised in a very loving but also very hard nosed um, South Asian household, and I think I think a degree of order is required. I think you know respecting your parents, respecting your elders, who have who have greater life experiences, more times than not been through a far greater level of suffering. Uh, my own mother, for example, fantastic woman um she lived through the 1971 liberation war for bangladesh uh, and i and i think that to, to have those kind of parental figures who are so inspirational it, it almost makes me feel like oh you know if you're having a bad day mate get yourself together right and just crack on that, that that's the kind of action I have. and i also think that if you're part of a you know stable and loving family within a wider community you want to respect your family name you don't want to bring shame to your family. You don't want to embarrass your family. And I think, in a way, it gives you that healthy pressure. Well, I could do it doing well in this exam. I don't want to tell the uncle down the road, or the you know the uncle of the Asian grocers, I didn't do very well in my exam because they will ask you because they take an interest. They take an active interest. Some people say, "Oh, you're being nosy, too interventionist." But I think generally, in most cases, it's because they take an interest in the in the progress of young people in their local community. But you want to give them good news, and I think that healthy pressure. I, I think it's quite useful for young people's progress. And I think that's something that I touched upon in the book. But then naturally, if you part, if you have a dysfunctional family background, you don't have attentive parents. And on top of that, your local community doesn't care about you very much. But it is so hollowed out and atomized that that pressure isn't there. But also the young people in those communities, they feel disconnected as well so I think that's why I talk so much about family and community in the book because I think that there's such influential determinants when it comes to shaping life chances in modern day Britain Brendan.
0: Okay Rakib my final question for you Um, I lost faith in the Labour Party decades ago many many years ago I never really had it if I'm being brutally honest Um, I always thought that they were more likely to stab working class communities in the back than help them out that's a view I've had for a long time partly from experience in my younger years and growing up and um, just the way in which certain Labour politicians or local politicians would behave towards certain communities and to, towards certain households. So I never really had much faith in the Labour Party. Um, you have some, I think, or certainly in the book, and you've mentioned it all in this conversation too, you say that we need a sensible, pro-working-class um, non-identitarian social democratic party that can address some of the serious problems in the country and and push towards uh, more fairness, more equality and a, a better standard of living for all people. Uh, and that's an idea that I think would be a good one. Many people would share your belief in that. But I just have to ask you, just as a final question, is that going to be the Labour Party? Because you're you're right to say that there's now a difference, of course, between the Corbyn years and the Starmer years. These are not the same things. But this is still a party that tried to overthrow the vote for Brexit. This is a party that its leader still cannot say what a woman is. He still says that 99% of women don't have a penis, when we all know it's 100%. Uh, he. This is still a party in which, uh, as you mentioned, Annalise Dodds wants to bring in a racial equality law, which would just be a performative, you know, uh, pseudo anti-racist measure. Mm. Um, this is a party that looks upon certain sections of society as gammon, which has a pitying attitude towards the Muslim community that that doesn't understand working class people. I would say. Mm. So is there any hope for it? Can it be transformed? Or do you think it's a lost cause? That's a very loaded question, I know, but <laughs> tell me what you think.
1: It's a very loaded question. And, and, and as, as we touched upon before, I, I, I'm probably a bit more of an optimist than you are. And I have a little bit of hope. And I think, I think the key thing is, is that Labour has a golden opportunity to win the next election very well to win a handsome parliamentary majority. And, and and I think that if it wants to achieve that, it, it can't continue with a lot of the things that you're talking about there. That's the truth of it. Um, but, but I think it's ultimately about what's the centre of gravity within the party. I, I, I think that's what it is. I think, I think there's some people within the party who understand that they continue on this trajectory. They will not be as electorally successful as they should be. And they'll be doing a disservice to the country as well. Um, I think what you need is that you need more of those people within the party. Uh, but but, but I, d- I do believe that, for example, you're talking about there, about radical transgenderism. If that becomes increasingly known in socially conservative communities in places like Luton, Labour's going to have a very serious problem. There's no two ways about that. So I think, in a way, the book serves as a bit of a warning shot. And I think that, that, that that's an important purpose that the book serves. So I think in short, I, mean, I don't want to sound too self-indulgent. I think that if Labour does many of the things that I say in the book, I think that it will not just perform really well electorally. I think there'll be a genuine force for social good in the country. But they're still quite a way away from that.
0: Rakib, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.